Listener Production. Every year, millions of us tune in for the NRL Grand Final. There's just nothing quite like sport that brings people together. Come game day, the sense of pride in the air is thick. The electricity from the thousands of fans descending upon the arena, decked out in their team's bold colours, is contagious. Whether you're a fan or not, most of us will remember moments like Jonathan Thurston's Golden Point victory, leading the Cowboys to glory at the final second, or the Knights' maiden premiership in 1997. It meant so much to so many. What we can't forget, though, is the jerseys stained red from blood, the bruised eye sockets and bandages all around the head, and the grating sound of a tackle way too hard. When your team lose, you lose. When they win, you win. And when they're hurt, well... Whether it's netball, horse riding, soccer or footy, Head injuries pose a significant risk to the safety of players, whether you're playing in front of the nation or at the local club. The suspected impact of head injuries within the NRL has been a topic of conversation for years. We've just never had the practical tools to do anything about it. Until 2017, that is. What happens when you put an NRL legend and University of Newcastle's researchers in a room? Well, they developed tackling techniques that could not only improve the safety of players, but enhance the play of the game too. So players can perform at their very best and parents can confidently send their kids to practice without the fear of hard knocks. Hi, I'm Shani Wellington, a Wandi Wandi and Geringer woman, and I'm from the University of Newcastle. And this is The Minds Changing Lives. Yeah, I grew up in an Aboriginal hostel in, in Kirinari Hostel at, up in Newcastle, and I ended up at a, a school zone, so you call it the Hunter Region zone trials. I was playing basketball at the time. I didn't have no football boots, and one of my um, roommates... He was playing opens and I was playing 16s. We would swap boots. So he would play one game and then it will be around that time when it was my turn to play and I will take his boots off him. And, um, the rotation. The rotation, <laughs> yeah. It was a good rotation. It ran smoothly. Tamana Tahu, T, doesn't really need an introduction. He's one of the NRL's greatest players in history, a dual-code international player whose career spanned 17 years. There was his scout from the Newcastle Knights handing out free invitations to go and trial with the Newcastle Knights and all my mates grabbed a ticket. I thought, well, if my mates are gone, then we're going to have a good time and go and play some more footy. From there, um, I made the cut for the under Jersey Flag and, and I found myself, yeah, playing first grade and thought, oh, yeah, that's... It's good. I'm, I'm, I've got a job and I'm happy and the rest is history. Sitting here now with the career that you've had and looking back, what, what significance did sport play in your life to think of what you were like when you were a young fella, you know, swapping boots with your mates just to get onto the field? When you look back at it now, what, what did that mean to you to get that opportunity? What sport 
gave me was an opportunity to find myself, learn new skills, learn to communicate, learn to work in a team environment, uh, learn how to work under pressure, be disciplined, have respect, honor the people around you, you know, and, and, and try and do good by helping the community and helping inspire the, the next generation. Tamana really does embody what grassroots sport is all about. Coming up from zones as a kid, just loving the game, to making it to first grade, to where he is now, the senior manager of Elite Indigenous Pathways at the NRL. Do you remember that first game when you ran out there for in first grade? Yes, yes. Um, I work right next door, so you can pretty much throw a rock and hit the hit the stadium at the moment where where I work out at headquarters. But uh, uh, I was only talking to a uh, Frank. Polotua, who played for the Penrith Panthers, I sit right next to him. So we were just talking about the old war stories. And one of them I was talking about, yeah, my first game on a debut and Chief Paul Harrigan pulled out that day and retired and we were playing against South Sydney and Mark Carroll was playing for South Sydney at that time. So I thought I was going into a, a game where I was going to see some um, big hits and I was, I was really nervous, actually. I, I was pretty scared. Off the kickoff, Mark Carroll catches the ball and runs full steam ahead at David Lomax and knocks him out. Um, he had to get taken off and, yeah, I was second-guessing. Back in the day when you were starting out, and especially, you know, many of us are no stranger to watching those big hit highlight reels that are on the internet, how how big of a part of, a, of the game was the physicality of it and having those big hits throughout the match. How important was that to for the audience and for the players back then? I think it was great entertainment for the fans. Back in the day, it was more of a, a personal battle with your opposition number. So everyone would, would try and tee off on each other and make it personal. If you did get knocked out and you walked off the field, then you was known as soft. And you're not hard enough. When I first started, the Chief and and Mark Carroll days, it was a personal battle. And that's where you've seen most of those big hits is because players were going out and trying to soften each other up to try and get the advantage for the rest of the team to get down the park and score some points. When you were on the field, you're probably thinking about 100 things a minute. But did you ever think about the impact of your tackling technique that it had on yourself or other players? Uh, yeah, it didn't until probably 2001 when I played country versus uh, city game in Bathurst um, and I got got KO'd. I woke up on the sideline. Um, I think I did get, I did walk off, but I woke up on the sideline and didn't know where I was and didn't know who, who hit me, but it was uh, a tackle technique that's what I got taught what was the idea of, of uh, executing a good lower body tackle? Hi, I'm Andrew Gardner. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and I'm an associate professor at the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Newcastle. What we do know is that when you get that slightly wrong, if you set your feet too early, if you're um, ducking your head and putting your, your head down and looking at the ground too early or even at any point really, you have a huge vulnerability to hit one of the hardest parts of the ball carrier's body and that's the hip. 
And so if the head hits the hip, most of the time you're going to become symptomatic and it's highly likely to result in a concussion. Since 2017, Dr Andrew Gardiner and Tamana have been collaborating on evidence-based approaches to reinventing those tackling techniques you find in the coaching Bible. Like the cheek-to-cheek or the catch-and-stick, the culprits of nearly all concussions in the sport. Dr Gardner is leading research on concussions in the NRL and at the University of Newcastle. As a clinical neuropsychologist, I am an expert in cognition or thinking skills, uh, and my area of interest has really become traumatic brain injury and specifically sports-related concussion. So I work as a clinician, but also as a researcher in that field. And so we have a lot of research across the full spectrum of concussion that we have going on over a number of years, over a decade now. Back to rugby league, you know, when you take a look at it, there's five opportunities in a set for someone to have a tackle and, you know, get their head in the wrong place. How common is a concussion when you're looking at a game or or even an athlete's life? Yes, that's a it's a really good question, and there's so many caveats to it. So it depends on what level of the competition it is, um, what the rules are. So for the junior age groups, you've got modification of rules, and so the injuries are less common. And also, when they do have an injury, they tend to be less significant, mm. just because of the modification of the rules, and they're not moving as at as much speed. A concussion is a traumatic brain injury that results from a bump violent jolt or blow to your head. They stretch and bruise nerves and blood vessels and cause chemical changes in the brain that result in a temporary loss of normal brain function. A single concussion usually doesn't cause permanent damage, but a growing body of research involving retired rugby league and AFL players shows that multiple concussions over a lifetime may result in structural changes in the brain. Fundamentally, avoiding concussions starts with technique. Techniques most of us learn at the grassroots level. There is a discrepancy between the level of scrutiny or the level of surveillance that goes on at each of those levels. So there's not many concussions that get missed now at the professional level because they have so much support and infrastructure around those teams and clubs. Whereas at the community level, if you don't have somebody that knows what a concussion is and what it might look like, you may have a concussion or sustain a concussion because you, as an athlete, potentially don't know that it's a concussion and nobody else points it out to you. Then you probably have sustained a concussion, whether it be mild or or not. And concussions are not just limited to footy. Most sports carry a risk of head injury, which 15-year-old Callan recently found out for himself. Hi, I'm Callan. I'm 15 and I play soccer. It's a really fun sport to play. Like, just improving and playing against other teams and just the competitiveness of the game is just really fun and enjoyable. Pretty recently, probably a few months ago now, what happened was it was kind of just a cup game that we were playing against another team and pretty late into the second half of the game just had a head collision when I was running up with the ball with one of their centre backs. And in that moment, Callan, did you, do you feel like you knew you were concussed? Like how did, how did you feel? Uh, not really at the time, but I definitely knew something was wrong. After the initial contact, um, their keeper kicked it out and I had to head the ball out and I definitely felt that something was wrong when I headed the ball out because I could just feel it all throughout my body just when I headed the ball. 
you heard the slap of sort of the his head hitting Callan's head and, and the body, obviously, the two bodies going down. Watching from the sidelines was Chad, Callan's dad. Chad actually works in the NRL, so knows what a concussion looks like. Well, at least he thought he did. Callum bounced pretty quick and um, he sort of jumped up and started going back into position uh, and we sort of thought, oh, it didn't sound right, maybe I've missed it, maybe I got it wrong. Uh, called out to Callum as he went back into his defensive position and he sort of stuck his fingers up to say it was okay. But um, it wasn't until after the game that we sort of realised that uh, there was definitely some marking on his face and some bruising that was happening on his cheekbone quite significantly and some ice needed to be applied and... Um, but it was more that he doesn't show pain very much and he started to quiver in his bottom lip that we thought, yeah, this is a bit more serious than we first thought. When, you know, you talk about that sound it made, did you, was there, you know, I'm not a parent, but was there a little alarm that went off in your brain that's kind of like, you know? Yeah, you sort of, you worry for, I think, your whole team when you're, when you're there and mm. you're managing a team and you're part of it. Uh, but more importantly, when you're a parent and you've got your child out there, Hearing the noise and the impact, yeah, sort of, and being a part of a professional sort of sporting team like the Knights, and knowing some of the injuries that the uh, players have sustained uh, more recently with some cheekbone injuries and concussions, yeah, you think the worst straight away. Mm. Um, and then, uh, but as I say, you probably there was a bit of relief there, but it wasn't until after the game that we actually took it as serious mm. as we probably should have uh, at the time because Callan didn't show the right symptoms at the time by putting his thumb up and wasn't stumbling or anything like that. Didn't stay down long, uh, just bounced, uh, but it was post-match that the, we really started to act on it. During the time I had the head injury, I was doing half yearlies and nap plans and assessments and everything. So during class time and everything else, I lost the ability to focus and couldn't really get much work done. I also re- like got headaches and everything, which wasn't nice because it kind of just stopped my learning. And especially during tests, I definitely did work than I thought I would. So it definitely affected my ability to learn and sink. After Cal was diagnosed with a concussion, he was out of play for about four weeks and underwent an extensive testing process to make sure he was symptom-free before he got back out on the field. When we're looking at younger players, for example, or in these different sports, is there a different kind of impact that a concussion might have on a developing brain compared to an older brain? Yeah, that's a good, very good question. And certainly we think that there potentially is. There might be windows of um, vulnerability, particularly when you talk about a developing brain. The child athlete typically takes a lot longer to recover than an adult athlete. And when we're talking about recovery, we put everybody through a graduated return to play process. And when it comes to education, we need to really make sure that they're able to sit in the classroom and be tolerant of the noise that goes on in that classroom and the lights that are potentially on and they're able to sit there and concentrate. Otherwise, they're wasting their time being there, but also it could exacerbate the symptoms if there's too much stimulation going on. So we we put them through a pretty rigorous um, assessment process. So it could be quite a lengthy process over a period of days, weeks. What are we talking about? Yeah, so sometimes, unfortunately, it is a few weeks for people to feel better. Um, adults typically recover within that seven to 10 day period, but there is a lot of now more highly sophisticated MRI techniques that are being conducted that are showing that the brain hasn't probably gone back to normal for a lot longer. So it might be up to four weeks, whereas kids can take anywhere up to four weeks and that would still be considered normal. 
when you are symptomatic three months down the track, which is a long time down the track, um, we refer to that as post-concussion syndromes. We do know that there's changes that happen uh, in the brain post-concussion that involve neurometabolites that involve the electrical activity and the communication between certain areas of the brain. So when that's disturbed, it does take a little bit longer for the kids to return back to what we'd consider to be normal or baseline um, compared to adults. They sort of talk about these mild brain bleeds in children, and I think there's obviously more and more research going into that and the impacts of uh, contact sport. Um, Yeah, just for me, it opened my eyes. For any sport, especially high-contact sports like footy, recognising the signs of concussion is crucial. Through his research, Andrew has developed the three R's approach. Recognise, remove, refer. Which is being adopted by sporting codes from the community to elite level. So you want to recognise that an injury may have occurred. You don't have to make a diagnosis. Recognition doesn't mean diagnose. Diagnosis is made by a medical professional. But if we suspect that a concussion's occurred, we're recognising it, we're removing them immediately from play and we're referring them to a medical practitioner. So whether that means they go to the emergency department straight away or whether that is a referral to a GP in a day or two's time, then that's really important that they get followed up by a medical practitioner. To take you back to that, um, you know, 2001 in that moment, like how did that feel? Like for for many of us, we might not um, ever experience being concussed, especially playing a game that you you played so much. Did you just black out? How did you feel? What was that process? Oh, I did get knocked out, broke my nose. My nose is still a bit bent from it, but um, no, it wasn't a very good feeling. And, and for the whole week, it wasn't a very very good feeling as well. Uh, headaches, you know, two black eyes, broken nose, couldn't breathe out of the nose. Um, you know, there was no HIAs, there was no medical doctors, there was no um, assessments. You know, I just thought for myself, if I want to play a, a lengthy career, then I've got to make some changes. Tamana felt strongly that the traditional cheek-to-cheek method of tackling was a big contributing factor to his knockout. This technique requires the attacker to target the ball carrier's pelvic area, and at speed, reacting to the carrier's change of position is difficult, with the technique requiring the attacker's head to be lowered. Inspired by a mate who competed in UFC, a sport based on mixed martial arts, Tamana started experimenting with new techniques on the field that protected the head and neck. I felt like my defence started getting better and I started seeing a change in, in some, of the, some of the tackles that I was doing that were safe for me on high impact, but they were performance-based. When you are isolated as a young kid and there's a big kid running at you, the first thing the kid tries to do is do a legs tackle because that's what he's been taught to do. But at training... They get told to do head to hip or ear to cheek. That's where we've seen a lot of the head accelerations. Tamana believed the attacker should aim higher, targeting the more forgiving abdominal region. This would also provide a better line of sight and the attacker's head wouldn't be as low. Everything's been hearsay on how you should be tackling. It's not scientifically proven that that tackle is effective. And so that's when we got together and I say we being myself and also Dr. Susie Edwards, who's a biomechanics expert, 
got together to try and validate some of his tackling techniques. And we've gone through that process with a number of um, amateur athletes. We got together and uh, brought some volunteers in and we borrowed a, a head accelerator from Harvard University. So a professor over there was using it with NASA pilots and trialed it on some NFL dummies. But uh, we rang him up and or Andrew rang him up and asked him, oh, can we use it on live people? And he, yeah, we got to borrow it and we got volunteers in the lab and we started looking at the variables and, and seeing the different types of head accelerations and, and body and head positioning from the biomechanics and we started looking at the data on, on my tackle techniques which is popping actions not driving actions because when you're driving you got to lean over and that's where you start making contact with the ground it's just natural that if you know you're going to get tackled you brace yourself or you try and step out of that tackle because you don't want to get hit and sometimes players, well, not sometimes, most of the time, players are leading in head first. We've had a look at the biomechanics of, of those techniques from both the textbook's perspective. Not only is the technique safer than performance-wise, we're not um, reducing the ability of the tacklers to have a dominant tackle. So it's all well and good to make a tackle safer and to say, oh, you should employ this tackle, but if it doesn't work from a performance mm -hmm. perspective, the players don't want to know about it and the coaches certainly don't want to know about it. So we need to be thinking from a practical perspective, how is this going to affect the performance of the tackler, but also the defensive team um, and the structures that they go through as well. So it's a bit of a win-win really if the tackle's even more efficient. Yep, absolutely. And it's not clashing a head with a hip in yep. that way. Yep, 100%. So we just need to make sure that we're conducting good sound research and we produce that research and then also work out how we then teach those techniques in an efficient and understandable manner. So one of the things that we have noticed while doing this as well is that the current coaching technique or coaching manual says one thing, but then when you talk to the coaches, they're talking about something in a different way. There's all different types of clubs in the NRL that have their own different footy jargon and how they teach their players how to tackle. And I'm guessing in grassroots level, every father's got their own way of what they, how to, how to articulate that wording, how to tackle. And it is very much a task to rewire an entire sport. Yep, 100%. And, and that's the thing when we talk about behavioural change, there's a lot of research that's been conducted in that and cognitive dissonance is another thing, but it is really, really difficult to change behaviour. But the reinforcing factor is that when you do change it, they are staying on the field longer, you're reducing the concussion rates, but also the performance doesn't change. And when everybody understands that, then I think the adoption of the new technique is going to be good. Definitely. And it's easy to get caught up in outrage over how these things affect the game or in the moment when people are getting sent off. But in the end, at the end of the day, it's for their own well-being and we need to look at long-term impacts. Are you seeing the long-term outcomes for, for your research as of yet? Yeah, so we do have a lot of players that have come through. We've created a database of that's one of the largest in the world of any sport. Our preliminary findings that we've published in the literature and have gone undergone peer review are largely not demonstrating a strong correlation between those that have cognitive issues or those that are suffering from dementia and their exposure to concussion and their exposure to sport. What we've found is that it's, there's a stronger correlation between their alcohol use, their chronic pain, their mental health. So it's both the neuroimaging that we've conducted through MRIs, but also from a cognitive perspective as well, that there's a stronger relationship between their extracurricular activities in terms of 
of alcohol use mm. um, and chronic alcohol use, unfortunately. And then also the chronic pain that they um, have gone through. Uh, it's largely a result of having played a sport that's pretty brutal on the body. Even though that concussions is, is a major talking point in the sporting world and the damage that it does, but scientifically of what I've been told by professionals is that we still got a long way to go. Is it the, the lifestyle of, of the elite player that sometimes lives that um, good life or is it an hereditary uh, problem from, from a family history? I think that even talks more to the importance of your work in this space because if we can control one factor being the tackling technique and, and what role the sport and the game can play in that, why wouldn't we improve it, you know? Yeah, and I, we've got some really good commissioners on, on board with it, all, all the different departments on making this game good and, you know, the, the NRL have got a really good it's, – it's a really good environment Everyone's wanting the game to be better. And the positive side of it is that I'm collecting evidence for, for our players now. I'm collecting evidence for our future future grassroots or future NRL players or rugby union players. And then, you know, I'm given that given that sense of for, for parents that they don't have to live in fear. The importance of it is we all want our children to play sport. We want them to be competitive. Uh, we want them to enjoy it. But incidents do happen like this. So the more education and the programs that we can give to not only the parents but also the clubs, um, I think the better off everyone will be. Yeah, and they'll be able to do it. It's just they'll yeah. be safer in the process. Yeah, very much so. And it does seem a new thing. Uh, I think potentially rugby league being a contact sport and tackle sport, they probably had a little bit of an earlier education mm. into the nature of head injury. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, football, uh, basketball, netball, it, it happens there as well. Do you think uh, other young athletes like yourself should be aware of concussion and, and how it even feels? So if they do have one, that they know the, the steps to take after? Uh, yeah, I feel like it's pretty important. I mean, there's a lot of head knocks in all sports that have physical contact. So even if it's just a quick run by, it definitely should be some precautions there. The preliminary results of the safer tackling techniques are exciting for both Andrew and Tamana, who will be embarking on observational studies and clinical trials next. But that's not all they have in store for the future. We only just scratched the surface on this and we've just started doing testing on the NRLW girls as well. So there's a lot of girls out there that want to play rugby league. They love it and there's so many talented girls out there, some that I, I feel like are better than boys, starting where it is becoming professional and it is growing, we sort of hit the right times of, okay, let's get a team around this and start researching. So these girls can be, you know, not only the they, they've raised the bar on and being the first to play professional rugby league in the NRLW, but also be pioneers and, you know, do these testings in the labs and and help us collect these data. So moving forward, the little girls that are playing in Newcastle in the grassroots football, there's a pathway, but also there's a there's a safety component that I know, you know, we all know that they're gonna be looked after when it when it comes to that time when they become uh, professional athletes. How does it feel to know that you are doing work that could potentially be making an institution rugby league, the people's game, safer for Everyone from, you know, 
under eights to the big leagues. Yeah, well, it's it is it is a nice feeling, but it's never really about me or about our research team. Um, it's really about the people that get to to play the sport and those that we serve. So I'm always big on being available to use my expertise, whatever that may be, to help others. So if we can help parents make decisions, informed choices about whether they want their little Johnny or little Mary, their children, kids to be involved in a certain sport because of whatever concerns they have. And I think it's important that they make an informed choice, not just a a choice made out of emotions and potential misinformation. So, um, so that's important, but also the, the players and athletes that I get an opportunity to work with and see, it's really reassuring for me and reinforcing for me that when I do get a chance to invest my time into them and give them advice around how they're doing and, and what's going on, that's, um, that's really special as well because they, they tend to be really willing to listen and really keen to, um, I guess, take your advice and understand your perspective. But I also try and make sure that they're looking at a lot of other things other than just me as well. So they get a full spectrum of, of ideas and concepts. Um, so yeah, it's really important. There's going to be dangers in, in every, every sport that you're playing. Um, but having the confidence that the game is working really hard from the top, from our commissioners, all the way down the NRL chain, down to club land, into your state leagues, out into the communities, making sure that when your kid runs on the field, that we're doing our best to make sure that that kid's in a safe environment and that, you know, they're not fearing about tackling. They're, they're learning life skills out in the field. The trailblazing research Andrew, Tamana and the whole team at the University of Newcastle are conducting optimises best practice at the community and elite level with insights that inform the safety of all sports, not just footy. When it does come to footy, improving the safety of one of the country's most beloved sports is essential in securing the future of the game for generations to come. A game with essential life skills built into its DNA that brings people together and provides pathways for young kids, just like Tamana was, to thrive. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the University of Newcastle, hosted by me, Shani Wellington, produced by Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Fulston. Listener.